Welcome to the Shagulala Salami Show. Hey there, I'm Rachel Archelaus, and thanks so much for having me on the show. Today I'm going to be reading from my latest book, Intuitive Art, How to Have a Two-Way Conversation with Your Higher Self. The book teaches you how to talk to your intuition and get some more context and really develop a relationship with that part of you. And it also tells the story of some of my toughest times and how I got through them using intuitive art. One time in particular was pretty rough. I was in a really bad relationship and I really didn't know how to trust myself. I couldn't trust the people around me. And I think you'll understand why once I'm done reading. So thank you so much for listening and I hope you enjoy it. Introduction. How different would your life be if you could see the future? What if you always knew the right decision to make, when to risk it all, and how to take the next best step to create the life you've always known is your true destiny? What do you feel when considering those ideas? When I contemplate these questions, I feel freedom. I feel the freedom to express my true self, freedom to make decisions based on my actual preferences, Freedom to slow down and actually be, to savor what is in front of me without fear of losing an opportunity or offending someone. When you make space for yourself, you also unleash the genius that is often tucked away under the surface. It's hidden from view because we're always so busy meeting obligations and putting the well-being and feelings of others first. Is it time to let your genius out and relax? If you'd like to get to know your essence, the truth of who you are, then you're in for a colorful treat. In this book, I will be showing you how to turn the above questions into habits. I'll show you how to use intuitive art to craft your dream life, ditch the confusion, and go deeper within yourself in a simple and easy way. You don't need meditation to achieve this. You don't need spiritual seclusion either. Just five minutes, some paper, and a few crayons. I stumbled across this special art form at the age of 11 while sitting on the floor, back against the tiger blanket overhanging my bed, painting a picture on the top of a small decorative cardboard box. It was for my mother's birthday. The box was only about four inches wide and it was square. I loved buying different shapes and sizes of craft boxes from Joann Fabrics because they were easy to paint. The paint I was using was rescued from the trash. My best friend Amy was the daughter of a costume designer for the Broadway production of Les Miserables. They were moving again and had a huge heap of garbage lining their sidewalk. I spotted a jewel amongst the refuse, and while Amy didn't really want me to take the wine box brimming with her mom's discarded oil paints, I couldn't let that treasure go. Oil paints are not the best idea for an 11-year-old, but I felt they would allow me to create new colors more easily than the art supplies I already had. This tiny painting for my mother looked like a checkerboard. There was a thick black line that separated the top of the box into quadrants. In each corner of the box was a slightly different shade of coral. One a little yellow, the other more orange. It wasn't a very pretty painting. Nothing refined or delicate about it, just a few blobs of color. When I finished the painting, I sat there staring at it and suddenly I was gifted a new understanding. I knew what those colors meant. I knew what the painting meant. 
It was as if I discovered a new magic trick. To see if I was making it all up, I went to my mother and shared the download that I received. I told her that the painting showed me that she compartmentalized her problems, that she wasn't as happy as she wanted me to believe. I felt and knew from the painting that she was hiding aspects of her life from my dad and that she was putting on a brave face for my sister and I. I also mentioned that I had no idea where the information had come from. No one appeared and whispered it in my ear. No one signed the letter that had been deposited into my head. That part didn't concern her much, and I was sort of used to things happening like that, so we let the how part go. The all-important validation did come. She was taken aback by what I had said, especially as I was only 11 and didn't even know what compartmentalized meant. She said that yes, she kept her problems to herself and didn't want to upset me. That was all I needed to know. In retrospect, that first session of intuitive art married all the loves of my life. Psychology, creativity, art, spirituality, channeling, and connection. Revealing my finding to my mother felt like a therapy session, a chance for her to view her own truth in a non-judgmental way. And for me, I got to witness how we alter our personalities for the sake of other people. I got to know my mother's values, keeping a brave face and putting her children first. And I also saw the power in art and intuition. Suddenly, the creativity that I cherished all my life grew into a multi-dimensional healing modality. But I wouldn't fully realize this for some time, until I desperately needed it myself. I've used intuitive art to overcome the roughest circumstances in my life. It's in our darkest moments that we often don't trust our intuition. We doubt ourselves, and it can be very hard to trust our closest friends and family, even when they take the risk of showing us a truth we are failing to see. In my darkest hour, I used intuitive art to provide me with a source of reliable, unbiased information that I couldn't find anywhere else. Chapter 1. Carving My Canoe I met him in high school. He had crazy, fluffy, wavy blonde hair and a creaky voice. He was like an old man trapped in a teenager's body. He even complained about needing a new back on a regular basis. He had blue eyes and crooked teeth. His ears stuck out a little, and he mostly wore his hair in a ponytail when he drove around in his white Ford Escort, because otherwise, the little tendrils would get sucked out the window. He smoked, did drugs, and was amazingly charming. His first act of affection was to headlock me in the hall of Shelton High, stick a green Gumby action figure up my nose, and have another girl take a picture. It was a blur, and I remember running away as fast as I could maneuver myself out of his grasp. I stopped myself about 40 feet down the hall and resolutely walked back. My first words to him were, I'm not scared of you. We were both in relationships and had to be covert while getting to know each other. Our favorite form of bonding was sending notes back and forth. We discovered we both loved the Smashing Pumpkins, Greek pizza, and poetry. We doodled and rhymed on soup can labels, scraps of wallpaper, and signed school notes. We flirted through song lyrics and by signing love instead of from. Once he included, would it be my fault if I could turn you on, a lyric by Meryl Bainbridge. Our love was a neon hot air balloon that we passed back and forth. No onlooker could escape it. 
I feel badly for our strung along significant others. It was cruel. Once, my boyfriend at the time found my online diary that contained an entire essay titled, Derek is my soulmate. To keep note passing interesting, we came up with elaborate delivery systems and fold designs. Once, I put a note in a copper tube, decorated the ends with dried flowers, and made a handle out of string. When I gave it to him outside the school one afternoon, he knelt before me in thanks. I smiled for a week. Definitely strange and exotic, he was nothing like anyone I'd ever met before. I felt compelled to know him. He was my prize of life. When we had any interaction, I went on to talk about it for days. Since he had a girlfriend, we didn't do much together alone. In fact, we'd only spent time alone a few times before we ended up together. One day after school, he asked me to go to the mall with him. My grandmother was watching my sister and I, and I knew she wouldn't let me go with a strange older guy, so I told her that he was my friend's uncle. How I came up with that is beyond me, but it did the trick. He picked me up in his escort, and we made the noisy drive to Milford. The car didn't accelerate beyond 50 miles per hour, so we took the back roads there. As we swept down one tree-lined road, he had me look out the window just after this particular farmhouse, and I saw a boulder as big as a garage leaning against the next house. Showing me this was such a simple gift, but he knew that it would bring me joy. Gasping, trying not to smile too big for fear I'd give away my true feelings for him, I quietly sunk deeper into my pit of excited longing. My heart had never felt bigger but the echo was stirring to become deafening. I was fascinated by everything in his car. There were Pez dispensers, paper clips, cobwebs, candles, and pennies everywhere. It was a circus of imagination, and I knew that it wasn't just a randomly assembled group of stuff. That dashboard was a place where the conversations of everyone who'd been there continued to happen. Energy lingered there, and I wanted a piece of it. It was alive. So I stole a piece of purple wax that smelled like grapes. It was a huge score for my Derek stash, an ever-growing pile of paraphernalia that had the residue of his energy. It was a link to something greater that I was slowly figuring out. I never questioned my attraction to him. I couldn't. Our intertwining energy had its own gravity and wouldn't let me loose. I knew I was obsessed, but it was beyond me to wonder why. I just knew it was right. We got married five years later. I was 20 years old. While the glorious fantasy in my mind continued, the reality of our relationship turned ugly. He was a brilliant musician, but lacked the skills to thrive in the real world. He smoked a lot of pot, hung out with inappropriate people, and couldn't keep a job. At the time of my meltdown, I was working two jobs and going to school full-time. I only saw Derek about 20 minutes a day, so keeping up the fantasy in my head was easier to do. The problem was that he started to turn on me. He had a new band and was starting to play real shows. I was proud of his accomplishments and wanted to see him in action. Since the shows happened on the weekends, I made a real effort to show up and see them live. Little did I realize that he was having an affair with the female singer. My desire to support him was making it harder for him to live a double life. He felt guilty and started to lash out at me. Lena seemed like a nice young woman, but I didn't get to talk to her often. The only conversation we had was before their first show. Wearing a hot pink two-piece skirt set looking like Jem from the 80s, 
She was 16 and understandably nervous and fidgety. She looked at me and said, I just want to sing. I started noticing the problem when she began to hide from me. She and Derek would hang out and practice their music in the basement of my father's house, where we were living at the time. One day, I came home while they were down there. Standing at the top of the basement stairs, I yelled down to say hello. Derek came over in full view and waved back up. I saw Lena's arm dangling beside him, yet she didn't peek her head over to greet me. She looked like a scared toddler staying hidden behind their parent. Instinctually, my body felt bruised and betrayed. I knew something was wrong. You don't hide without reason. The visceral realization created the first crack in my glacial delusion. From that moment on, I began slowly picking away the ice to find the truth. Why would she hide from me? I asked him later on that evening. She's in my home and she doesn't even have the courtesy to say hello. She was right next to you. She thinks you hate her, he said in a matter-of-fact way. Why would she think that? Did you say that to her? No, I don't talk about you. Well, then would you just tell her I don't hate her? If I could get to know her a little, none of this would be so weird. Let's just hang out sometime. And could you please just tell her not to hide from me? I don't want to talk about her anymore. And that was the end of the conversation. I felt a nail being driven down the center of my body. He was spending almost every moment with her. He obviously cared for her. Writing music and singing with someone is so intimate, and yet he could dismiss her and me with one word. The more I asked about her, the more he shut down. Can we have dinner? No. Can I come to the show? No. Is there something more happening between you? No. I had a dream about you two last night. Does this sound familiar? No. Then one night we had a huge showdown. We had finally moved out of my father's house and into a rented 400-square-foot cottage on a secluded wooded lot in Oxford, Connecticut. It was the first place we'd looked to rent, and I didn't immediately like it. The building used to be the main cabin for a Girl Scout camp that resided on the property. It had wide, scuffed-up hardwood floors and a huge cast-iron sink. He insisted we take it, though, and because it was in the woods and close to work, I let his guidance lead us. We signed the papers, and a few days later, it moved in. What he didn't tell me was that Lena lived right around the corner. He could walk to her house now. Nothing, not even his perpetually broken-down Volkswagen, was in his way. I found out, and I'd finally reached the bottom of my heart, the force knocking it to the floor. I felt the vibrations through my green cotton socks. I'd become a carved-out canoe and was ready to be set upon the river. Each synchronicity, each lie, taking one more scoop of wood with it. I was done. Thank you so much for listening, guys. If you want to hear how that situation played out and how I used intuitive art to help me out of that mess and how to use it for yourself, go grab the book. The links are located on this page in the show notes. And you can also just go to amazon.com and search for intuitive art and find it there. Thank you so much and lots of love. Bye-bye.